The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Will you join me on your feet in honor of the word of the Lord? And let's read this morning's text together. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 21. The word of God says this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just come before you this morning and pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in this place, that you would be our teacher, that you would awaken understanding of these passages more than just some history lesson, Lord. But Lord, we believe that you desire to speak to your people this morning. So may you have your way with us. May your spirit speak through even a flawed vessel such as I. May we see in your word and may we exemplify in our fellowship with one another your will for your people. And Lord, may you grow your kingdom through us. We pray these things, Lord, that you would just bless your people and instruct your people, lead, comfort, convict, whatever your people need. You would grant us that this morning that we might be more like you. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. My rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You guys can grab a seat. You guys can grab a seat. If somebody wants to flip, by the way, those backlights on, we usually have the curtain so we don't have to deal with it being too dark to read back there. But yeah, there you go. You guys can see as we read along so you can make sure I'm not lying to you as we read this stuff. Um, Here we are this morning in Luke chapter 13. We're getting kind of at the the halfway point of the text, um, a pretty pivotal text, and the context of the things going on in this particular passage are really, really important. Um, Here at Heritage, we kind of have a philosophy. If you're new here or haven't been around very long, we sort of have a philosophy uh, um, in terms of how we approach the Scriptures. We approach, anyone who's teaching here, approach the Scriptures from a really intentional and purposeful perspective. Um, angle or direction. It's referred to as a historical grammatical context. And so here's what we do when we teach the word here. This is our goal. 
Our desire is to just teach through the Word of God. So we don't just bounce around in Luke or grab this or that or the other. We want to teach through the whole thing. It forces us to have to deal with issues that maybe we would want to skip. Um, It allows God's Word to guide us rather than than us to dictate what we want to teach from God's Word. And so as we're working through the Scriptures verse by verse, when we come across different passages, we want to take what's called a historical grammatical approach to the Scriptures. And what that means roughly is this. That we believe that these things were written to a real people in real history and had real intent and meaning behind them when they were written. So what I mean by that is this. The story that we're reading today is true. It happened in a real time, in a real place. These actual events took place, and they were recorded by Luke for a purpose. He was trying to tell his audience something. He was trying to teach his audience something. And so when we approach the scriptures, we want to understand these stories or these texts from the same perspective that the people in that actual day would have understood them. We don't want to bring application out of these passages that wouldn't have made any sense to the people back then as if we have some sort of secret or hidden understanding now that others didn't. But we want to understand what was Jesus doing here? What was he saying here? What was Luke trying to teach us as he recorded this story here? And then go, so out of all of that, what does that then mean to us? What do we do with these things here? And that's really, really important to understand that sort of context. I believe, because otherwise you could go anywhere with certain things. Um, The idea is it's almost like music. You could take any song, any composition that's ever been written, and if you just picked a few different notes from the middle of it someplace and said, we're just going to focus on these notes. We're not going to worry about the ones after it. We're not going to worry about the ones before it. Let's just look at these notes. Well, you could come up with anything. You can study musical notes and put a couple of them together and go, therefore, this means, and come up with some sort of song, some sort of arrangement, some sort of composition that looks or sounds nothing like what the actual music was intended to sound like when the author sat and composed that particular song. There's a melodic line that runs through it, and the same is true in Scripture. The different books of the Bible are not randomly, individually um, stories that are just thrown together so that as we happen across, we can find application here or there, but they are knitted together in such a way that God is telling one complete story throughout the text. And so as we come across them, we want to understand, like, how do these things fit into the grand picture? What's God really saying? We want to make sure that we understand God's will for us and that we're not just picking things out of the air willy-nilly and doing whatever we want with them. Willy-nilly. I haven't said that in years, I don't think. But there you go. Willy-nilly. We're not going to do that. Amen? So... With that in mind, as we're going to see, we're going to go through this story and just kind of go through the narrative, hopefully somewhat quickly, and then we're going to step back and go, why does Jesus say the things that he says in conjunction with the story that actually takes place? Because he's going to do something, and then the text is going to say, therefore he said, and then he's going to teach something. So the fact that therefore is there, you know the old phrase, whenever you see the word therefore, you should try to make sure you know what it's there for. The teaching is tied to the action that takes place. And what can we learn about what's happening in this story and what Jesus is teaching out of that? So we'll go through the narrative, then we're going to step back and we're going to take like a giant bird's eye view to overlook everything from afar. Amen? You guys with me on that? So with that being in mind, we'll just start in verse 10. 
It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So this woman had some sort of actual physical condition um, that was preventing her from being able to straighten up. And some go, was this an actual physical thing? Was it a spiritual thing? And one thing we know for sure, it's clearly a physical expression because she's bent over and cannot stand up. But the way that it's phrased here as a, um, it's referred to, how does he say it, a uh, disabling spirit, and then later Jesus is going to specifically say that Satan has kept her in this place. We know at least this is a, a physical expression of something even more significant that's going on behind the scenes. So this woman, for 18 years, has been doubled over, hunched over, cannot straighten herself up. Now, if you know anything about the culture of that time, you know that this woman has now got two huge, major strikes against her in the culture that she's from. Because, number one, she's a woman. And in that day, for example, in the synagogue where Jesus would actually sit to teach, she doesn't get to come in there. Women in that culture were kept more on the peripheral. They had their role and their place, and they were not looked upon. Rabbis didn't interact with women, like super rarely would a rabbi ever have anything to do with another woman. They were already somewhat ostracized, maligned, kind of pushed to the margins of society. But a, but a woman with a handicap? Man, that's even, that's even worse. Because if she's been in this condition for 18 years... That means that doctors or anyone who would have looked at her has come up with like, okay, let's see what's going on. Let's see if we can try to help her. No one's been able to heal her. Probably because of her culture and the fact that she's even coming to synagogue in the first place almost guarantees that she's been prayed for before, asked for healing before, and it hasn't happened. And those of you that have been tracking with us, we've seen this before in the text, that when there's an issue like that and healing doesn't come over and over and over, well, the culture then, the religious culture then, tended to push that towards a whole different conclusion. They would say, well, she's like that because of sin in her life. Which may be, we know in the text that Satan's involved here to some degree somewhere, we don't know why, but that culture would have looked at it like, okay, this is a woman, she has a disability, and that disability's been here for 18 years, it won't go away, she's probably got unconfessed sin in her life or something, like something's wrong with her. And so no one in that culture would have anything to do with her. She would be the one in a village like this that everyone would know about. These are small villages that they're in. Everyone would know about, but no one would look at. It's, it's the one that you try not to make eye contact. You know when you come to the red light and there's the person at the end holding the sign saying that they want money, and when they're walking down the, the end and you try not to make eye contact with them because you don't want to have to say no? It would have been like that. So this woman, completely ostracized for 18 years, but someone sees her. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And Jesus is so good. Amen? I know that's like a, such a general, like, duh statement, but every once in a while we need to remember, Jesus is so good. Amen? I mean, here's this woman that's off to the side, ignored, 
People have given up on her in terms of healing, any of those kind of things. It's the kind of culture where she's going to be looked down upon or not looked upon at all. And here she is, and either whether it's on the inside, whether it's on the outside, whether he sees her through a window, whatever the case may be, Jesus sees that she's there. She's pursued him, or she's at least come to synagogue like someone's supposed to. She's on the outside there, but Jesus, it says, he saw her, he noticed her. He took time to look upon her condition and recognize and notice the condition was in. Then he pursues her. Like he calls her and says, hey, come, come here. Come let me talk to her. He's actually pursuing interaction with her. He's speaking to her. He touches her and he heals her. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. And this little side note that we'll probably get to hopefully by the end here in just a minute. Just remember, man, if you're here and, and you've been looking to things for years and years and years, trying to find that thing that'll fix you, that thing that'll straighten you out, that thing that'll heal what's going on. You're looking for that person that's going to finally accept you, that's finally going to welcome you in. You're looking for that relationship where you won't feel ignored, whatever the case may be. Let me just make that search so easy. It's Jesus. He's the one. The best husbands in the world are failures. The best wives in the world are failures. The best doctors, the best friends, the best of everything else in the world will still always leave you lacking ultimate fulfillment, ultimate peace, ultimate healing, ultimate love, and ultimate acceptance is found in one place. It is one-stop shopping. He made it easy on us. It is the person of Jesus. It is not a philosophy. It's not found in a way of living, it's found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he looks for the maligned, he looks for the one that's struggling, he looks for the one that's ignored, he even looks for you when you're saying, eh, not me, I gotta clean myself up a little bit more before I'm gonna be worthy of having Jesus want anything to do with me. He would go, no, 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 no. You, not some future version of you, you right now, there is love and acceptance and peace waiting for you in the person of Jesus Christ. I should have got a better amen right there, don't you think? Anyway, we'll get to that in just a little while because we have time. We don't have a whole lot of time, but, but know this. If you're looking all over the place, here, who's going to straighten me out? Who's going to fix me up? Who's going to accept me? Jesus Christ is the one, and if you don't know him, don't leave this place today without that. Amen? You come talk to me after service. You come talk to one of the pastors. We'll make sure you get to meet our friend. But So this is what happened. Jesus heals her, and immediately she glorifies God as you might expect. She, for 18 years, I mean, two days ago, we had sunny blue skies in the evening. It had only been a few weeks, but I glorified God, let me tell you. I was just like, oh, I thought I'd never see the sun again. This lady, 18 years, and now she's healed. All the pain, the difficulty, all gone, and she's standing up. Her whole life has now changed, and she's glorifying God, and she's worshiping, and this is awesome. And if there was no sin in the world, and if sometimes we fallen people weren't jerks, this is where the story would end, and it would be such a great happy ending right here. But then people. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. 
Now, let's think about context. Remember, this passage is connected to the chapters before it and will lead into the chapters after it. In the chapters before it, what has Jesus been doing? We've been studying this now probably for a couple of months, knowing our pace, but what has Jesus been doing over and over and over? He's calling the scribes, the religious leaders, and the people of Israel to repent. Why? Because he's saying, look, your hearts are so far from me You're getting caught up in the letter of the law. You're getting caught up in all this kind of performance stuff. You're pointing your finger at those who don't do and those who do. You're putting burdens on people that if they're going to be accepted by God, they have to do this, 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 and this. But your hearts are so separated from that. Like, God is a God of love. You have no love for the people. The the law was never intended to be a burden on people. You're just piling burdens on people, but then you yourselves, he says, you won't do anything to touch or help any of them. And he's constantly calling these religious leaders over and over and over to repent, to be reconciled with the God that they're supposed to be serving, and to understand the true heart of God for the people. He's been doing this over and over and over. So surely they get it by now, right? I mean, surely they would figure this out, right? And then, right, by the way, we've even done the Sabbath thing before. Luke chapter 6 talks about the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, God, or Jesus, heals on the Sabbath, and the people are indignant. The religious leaders are indignant. They say, the Sabbath, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath because we're supposed to work six days, and then God rested on the seventh, and the commandments tell us we're to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, so we don't do anything on the Sabbath. And then you could have waited till Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday in that particular culture. And so there's this legalism that goes upon all this stuff. In fact, they had written tons of extra rules, tons of extra laws to govern what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. What qualifies as work and what qualifies as not work. They had limits. Here's how far you can go. Here's how, if you need to walk somewhere, you can walk this distance. But if you take one step further than that, now you're working. And so that's a sin. They had all these different rules and things in place. And they were so caught up in those things. And so here's Jesus showing a heart of mercy to this woman who's been sick for 18 years. And she gets healed. Like, remember, they watch it happen right in front of them. And she's worshiping. And you know Jesus is smiling. And there's this beautiful scene going on. And then this dude jumps up. And notice, he doesn't say it even just to Jesus. It says he said this to the people. In verse 14, it says, the ruler of the synagogue declares to all the people, hey, hey, knock it off. Listen, all you people coming around here to get healed, you know the rules. On the Sabbath, we rest. You can come tomorrow or you come the day before. You've got six days to get all your stuff done. Now you're coming around here on this, knock it off. Like he's challenging Jesus' authority in front of everyone in that city. By the way, How much work did he actually do? He just touched her and said, be freed. They don't care. They've got a rule. He healed. That's work. We need to do something about this. Uh, We talked about this way more in depth in Luke chapter 6. If you want to go back to that teaching, it was December 17th. Um, But the issue is this, that Jesus, even in that moment, he declares himself, he is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to man to be a blessing to man. And instead, they were abusing the Sabbath and had turned the Sabbath into this burden of rules for everybody else to follow. And they're missing out on the blessing. And so Sabbath, instead of being something of joy, it was almost something you're afraid of. 
Like, we don't want to work too hard. We don't want to do this. We can't do that. What can we, is this against the rules? Can I do this? I don't even know. <sighs> I guess I'll just sit here and do nothing. That's what I'm going to do because then the synagogue guy's going to yell at me clearly. And it's like, what happened? This was like about joy. We've talked about this the last few weeks too. I mean, the Sabbath is modeled after God's creation account where he worked six days and didn't work. He rested on the seventh, but he didn't rest on the seventh day because he needed rest. God wasn't tired. God wasn't exhausted. He was creating a rhythm, a harmony for our lives to say, look, you're going to work, but listen, I created you. I know how you work. I know what you need. And so on the seventh day, I want you to put all those things down and rest. And even in that, we should be honoring God to say, what a gracious, loving God we have that he even gives us time off. What a gracious, loving God that he created the world to operate in such a way that he was concerned for me and my well-being to the degree that he was saying, there's lots of things to do, but on this day, I don't want you to do that. I want you to just rest. Men, that should lead us to worship with him. The Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing. And here's a woman with the most blessed Sabbath she has ever had, the most blessed Sabbath any of these people has ever seen, and the religious leader goes, no, um, it's against the rules. And so how did Jesus react to this? Verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So there were actual rules in, in the, the Mishnah that governed how, like I said, how they could operate and what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And according to Sabbath rules, you are allowed to go untie the rope from one of your animals and walk them, provided it doesn't ex- extend past a certain distance. You're allowed to walk your livestock down to water, let them get something to drink, and then lead them back and retie them. There's a distance, you know, whatever it is, a quarter mile or whatever it happened to be. But, but you're allowed to do that. Now, I want you to think about how Jesus has been talking recently. If you were with us when we talked about fear and anxiety, do you remember how Jesus addressed fear and anxiety with his disciples? He said things like this. Guys, think about the birds. Think about how God takes care of the birds. They're the birds. And he actually uses ravens, which we called flying rats. It's a trash bird. He's like, even those birds, as nasty as those birds are, God feeds them. God cares for them. God makes sure they have food. God takes care of those birds, those trash rat birds. Don't you think he's going to take care of you too? Aren't, aren't you, obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's a rhetorical question, it's, aren't you more important than the ravens? He says, think about, think about the lilies, the, the, the grass, think about the plants, think about how God has arrayed all these things. Don't you realize you're significantly more important to him than even those things, and yet he takes this much care of those things. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? And he's using the exact same logic here. He's turning to the Pharisees, the people that should be teaching this very stuff, and he's like, dude, listen, for 18 years... This woman has been in bondage to Satan. Like she has been bound up for 18 years. And you're telling her the right thing for her to do was to wait till tomorrow and then maybe it would be okay to come. Healing's here today, but you want her to wait? 
In the meantime, your cow gets thirsty. You'll untie that and walk it all the way down here. All I did was touch her, but you want her to wait. But you're going to untie your rope and walk your cow down to get water, and that's cool for you? He's pointing out their obvious hypocrisy, because here's what we know at this point. They're not repenting. He's been calling them to repentance over and over and over. And by this point, the hearts of the religious leaders there are hardened. And their real goal now is to actually destroy Jesus, something they will eventually do. Sam did such a great job last week just preaching and talking to us about the issue of repentance. So let me just say, please, man, don't keep putting that off. Don't ignore returning to Christ. Don't ignore the offers for repentance over and over and over. His pleading to be joined with you. Don't keep putting that off because God does not strive with men forever. And the more you reject him, the harder your heart gets. And at some point, the tipping point's going to occur. There's no coming back after that. Do not wait to repent. But they couldn't do it. Jesus is a threat to their way of life. He's a threat to the things that they've been teaching. He's a threat to their pride, to their position, to all these things. And so they refuse to do it. And so the issue is not that they're so dumb that they can't figure out that this gal is more valuable than their oxen. It's that they have become blinded to even the very will or heart of God because of their refusal to repent. And he's like, you don't even see this, you hypocrites. You're pretending to be men of God, people who are leading the people of God, and you don't even see how you're harming the very, and he uses the phrase on purpose, this is a daughter of Abraham. So the Jewish people all refer to them sons, themselves with pride as sons of Abraham, that this is our lineage, this is who we are. We're different than everybody else in the world because we are the chosen ones of God. That's what they're saying. And he's reminding them, hey, she's one of the chosen people of God. And she's been struggling for 18 years, and she needs help. And you would rather tell her, well, you need to come back on our terms. You need to come back and do it the right way. Go clean yourself up. Go honor the rules. Do everything right. We are not going to take a chance on getting ourselves dirty or, or looking inappropriate or pushing against customs or anything. We're not going to do any of that stuff. No way. You just come back tomorrow, and then we'll see what happens. And he's like, what is wrong with you? You have missed the very heart of God in this. And so verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. There's a connection if you want to read Colossians 2 about Jesus who puts, to, puts the uh, authorities of this world, if you will, to shame. We don't have time to chase that rabbit trail, but maybe you can study that on your own this week. But obviously so, Jesus points out this obvious thing. And here's this group of people here in this place that have been living under the bondage of these religious leaders and these rules and all this stuff, always worried if God accepts them or not. And then they see this happen. They see this woman healed. They see this miracle. And then when the guy tries to come and trump their joy, Jesus calls him out and says, what are you doing? And he puts the whole thing to shame in the people are like yes and there's like joy and celebration and happiness and God is being glorified and then Jesus begins to teach here's the therefore that we talked about verse 18 he said therefore what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches 
And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, which is a massive amount of dough that's going to be made here, until it was all leavened. So what, what's going on? Now again, verse 18 starts and says, he said, therefore. So what's that tied to? So this miracle happens. Pharisee tries to shut it down. Jesus calls him out and says, you have missed this. People are rejoicing. In this whole scene, Jesus says, because of everything that just happened, let me teach you something. And he teaches about the kingdom of God. And the teaching's somewhat obvious if, if you've been tracking with us for a while. He starts out by saying the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed, this tiny, tiny, little, bitty, seemingly totally insignificant seed. But when planted in the ground and watered and God gives it growth, it becomes this tree so big that now birds are coming from all over the place to make nests. It's become a haven, a refuge, a place of sanctuary for all of these animals, even though it started with this tiny little thing. And then he does leaven, which we've talked about a lot lately as well. This idea that there's this massive amount of flour to make dough, and just this tiny bit of leaven goes in, and yet it leavens the entire thing. Huge, massive, uh, 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 it, what do you call it, like a just giant, I don't know, what would you call groups of bread? I don't know, loaves, I guess. Loaves of bread, there's the word. But he's saying there's this little bitty thing, and it becomes this great, great big thing. This is what he's teaching about here. Okay. Um, but why? <laughs> what does that have to do with what just happened? Like, okay, that's great. Jesus, like, small to big. I, I get all that. But why is that tied to this? Why is this, this uh, hypocritical Pharisee and this woman being set free and all that, how does that tie into this thing about seeds and, and all of this kind of stuff? I think this is where we have to step back then and go, okay, what is he talking about from a bigger picture? Like what's happening, what is, not just what has Jesus been doing in the Gospels, which is part of it, but what's God been doing throughout history that brings them to this point? And here's what's important for you guys to know. The, ki- the phrase, kingdom of God, is a massive theme in the Gospels. Massive. The phrase alone appears over 126 times in the Gospels alone. The vast majority of time, it's Jesus preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, the Kingdom of Heaven, calling people to the Kingdom, repent, the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. He is over and over and over talking about this Kingdom. And so what is this Kingdom? And how does this tie into that? And what is he trying to show us out of this picture? And what do we then do with that? Why are we gathered here on a Sunday morning to try to figure that out? Because here's what we need to understand. Let me give you a definition first, and then I'm going to give you a big bird's eye picture. Some of you guys have heard us do this before, though I think it's been a while. We even did a whole series on this in uh, 2013, I think it was, about the kingdom of God. But I want you to see this passage as part of something much greater, and then maybe it'll help you understand what we are actually supposed to be doing as a church so that we would never, as a church, be in a place where Jesus could look at us and say, you hypocrites. So I'm going to give you a definition here. If you've got a pen, you can write this down. But whenever you see kingdom of God, here's where your mind can go. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. That's the biblical definition of kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, 
under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And the best place to see how all that works out, really, it's all over the place, but you can start out actually in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Have you guys figured out yet? I love going back to Genesis. Have you guys figured that out as a church yet? I do it like every other week. But in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God creates man, woman, animals, uh, light, dark, sky, ground, water, tree, plant, everything. God creates everything, and every time when he's creating these things, what does he say? It is what? It's good. What does he mean by that? This is what it was supposed to be. It's not bad. It's good. This is my design, and my design is good, and it's perfect. This is how we were created to be. And so he creates this garden known as God's place. He creates people in Eden, God's place, named Adam and Eve. So we have God's people in God's place, which is Eden, under God's rule. What is God's rule? Well, they're in fellowship with God. They're learning from him. And he gives them one rule. You can eat of any of the tree anywhere in the garden, but you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. That's the rule that they are to live by. And then they're enjoying God's blessing. What is God's blessing? Um, I don't know, everything. I mean, it's perfection. There's no pain. There's no difficulty. They're hanging out with animals, riding tigers. They're just whatever they want to do. It's like perfection. Everything's amazing. There's no mosquitoes. There's no smoke in the air. Amen, church. There's none of these things. It's in perfection. Everything's in harmony. Um, the, The Jewish phrase that you see throughout scriptures is the concept of shalom. And when the Jewish people say shalom, they mean more than just peace as in absence of conflict. The Jewish understanding of shalom is that there's total harmony. There's harmony man with God. The relationship with God is harmonious and it's, it's perfect. It's the way it's supposed to be. There's harmony man to man. Adam and Eve are together. They're naked, but they're not ashamed. There's no sin. There's nothing that has hampered their relationship. There's perfect harmony and love. And then they're in harmony with nature. And, and not just animals, though I'm totally an animal guy, so I, I can't wait till heaven because I think it's just going to be incredibly rad. Like Shark Week, I'm, I'm going to swim with those things. I can't wait. But, um, but, like, but it's not just harmony with nature in terms of just animals, though it is. I mean, they were, they were under Adam's dominion. He's naming them. He's the one um, in charge of all of that. But it's nature in general. So that means the plants, the ground's not working against him. There's no thistles or thorns. There's no such thing as pulling weeds but also his own body. There's no death. There's no decay. There's no suffering. None of those things are there. It is perfect harmony. It is the kingdom of God. God's people are in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings everywhere. And he's provided for them immensely there, right? And then Satan comes, and what does he do? Did God really say, he starts questioning God's rule, questioning God's word. Did God really say that you can't eat of the tree? And then he says, well, God knows that if you eat of that, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So now what is he doing? He's questioning God's rule and kingship and provision as a father even to them. And what he's saying is this, the temptation he's giving them is this. You don't have to be under God's rule. You don't have reason to trust God's blessing. He's actually holding out on you. And you don't have to be God's people. You can be like God. You don't have to be under him. You can be here. You can be God just like him. And so when they take of the fruit, it wasn't just that they messed up. 
It was an act of rebellion against God's rule, God's will, against the very kingdom of God. And in that moment, they had bought into a different ruler, whether they fully realized that part of it or not. And they have now bought into the rule of Satan. And everything fell apart. Everything crumbled at that moment. What was the result? God's place? Nope, they were banished from from the garden. God's rule? Well, they had broken that, and the history of mankind ever since has been a story of rebellion against the rule of God. What about living under God's blessings? No, they're not under a blessing. They live under a curse. There's an actual curse that then takes place. The ground, let's think about the harmony, their relationship with God. That harmony is now broken. God's looking for them. Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? What about relationship man to man? Well, now you've got, or man to woman in that particular story, you've got Adam and Eve together, and what are they doing? They're instantly blaming one another. They're covering and hiding one another from their nakedness, and then they're going to have kids. The first uh, sibling pair in all of history, one's going to murder the other. So that harmony is very gone. And harmony with nature? Now there's pestilence, there's thorns, there's all of these things that now come into play. So all of that shalom is broken. The kingdom of God is now ruptured. It's broken. It's not good. It's not what it used to be. But we said this about Jesus, and Jesus is God. God is so good. Amen? And right in the middle of that story, God says to the serpent, says, listen, but there's one coming there's one coming, it's going to be through her seed, and he's going to come, and one day, he's going to bruise his heel, crushing your head. Yeah, it's going to bruise him, but your head, and even in that context, like you're thinking about the head, like it's the, it's the dominion and the authority, you will be defeated by one who is a seed from this woman. And so as the story progresses, God moves away from a family, and he goes to a nation. It's through this guy named Abraham. You guys heard of him? And so in Genesis, look at the text, and you'll see this stuff coming up here, right here. Look in Genesis 12. I forgot to check. We do have those, right? Genesis 12. Slide dude is so into what I'm saying right now, he has no idea. Here we go. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So think about this in terms of a kingdom. God says, Abram, you're going to leave this land. No, leave that up if you guys would, sorry. Um, You're going to leave this land. You're going to leave the authority of your father. You're going to leave all of this behind, and you're going to go to a place that I'm going to give you, my place. I'm going to lead you somewhere. You're going to follow me. That's my rule. You're going to be my people, and you're going to enjoy my blessing. It's the same idea of the kingdom of God. He's, he's re- going to rebuild his kingdom here on earth, and he wants to use Abram and his descendants to do it. As you guys know, this will eventually become the people of Israel. And the plan for the people of Israel was that they would be um, almost like an excerpt from what things were supposed to be like inserted into this domain, this kingdom of darkness that the world is now in at this point. So in other words, this. You are going to be my people. You're going to be in my place. You're going to live under my rule. I'm going to show you what I'm going to have to do, all these things. And then through you, not only will you experience blessing, but I'm going to use you to spread those blessings all across the world. So how does it go? Well, the fast version of this is this. You would think God could have chose some better people. 
except there's no such thing, but yeah, right? Because how does it all go? Well, they just keep messing up over and over. Abram messes up a million times. They all mess up. Jacob's a sneaky guy. Like, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Next thing you know, this nation that's going to be under God's rule and God's place and all this kind of stuff, they're not even a nation even themselves anymore. They're imprisoned in Egypt. But God is what? He's so good. And so he sends Moses and he delivers his people from Egypt. And there's so many things, rabbit trails I'm avoiding right now, but there's so many things that take place in that. And he leads them out through the wilderness and he comes to this place called Sinai and he tells Moses to come up and he makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And he says this, I'm leading you to my place. We call it the promised land. He says, I'm leading you to my place. I'm going to give you my place, and it's going to be a blessing, man. We're talking like giant grapes and honey everywhere. It's almost as if he's describing Eden again as he's telling them about it. He says, I'm going to take you to this awesome place. You're going to be my people, and I'm your God. You're going to be under my rule. You're going to be a witness to other people around. You're going to enjoy my blessings. And he lays out this covenant that we refer to as the Ten Commandments. In later teachings going in through De- Deuteronomy, he breaks those things down even more, and there's more um, uh, explanation on how they're to live. But the idea is this. God is creating a new people, his people, who will be in his place under his rule, enjoying his blessings, the kingdom of God being reenacted, being put back together. And he wants them to live a certain way because they will be testimony to the rest of the world of the goodness of the kingdom of God. And he even goes in and he warns them, but listen, listen. At the end of Deuteronomy, he's like, look, if you fail, though, if you turn from me and choose not to be my people and not to live under my rule and not to be the kingdom of God, you need to understand what that's going to look like. You're going to end up getting carried away to another land, not my land. You're going to be under someone else's rule, not my rule, and it's not a rule you're going to want to be under. You're not even going to be a people anymore. You won't be a nation anymore. And he lays, and it will not be a blessing. And so he's warning them, be about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of darkness out there. There is no middle ground. So how does it go? You guys can probably know that if you don't already know the story, you can probably tell where we're headed by this. It doesn't go well. In fact, most of the things that they're actually supposed to do, many of them they never even do once. But God is very patient, and he waits, and he waits But as they continue to rebel against God's rule, as they make it about their place and all of these things, they end up doing kind of the exact same thing as Eden. And if you think about what God's doing, it it relates perfectly to Eden. He's saying, I have an abundant place for you, but if you reject my rule and you reject my authority, you won't be there anymore. And sure, what happens? Well, Jerusalem gets invaded. The Babylonians take people off into captivity. They are a people in exile. They are not God's people under God's rule, enjoying any sort of blessing. They are struggling. And now it looks like the nation that was supposed to be the ones who brought the Messiah that's going to fix all of this curse and all this stuff, they're not even a nation anymore. So how in the world is that ever going to happen? Are we just all ruined now forever? And then in Isaiah, there's this awesome poem. In Isaiah 52, there's this beautiful poem where God, through a prophet, says to the people of Israel this, awake, awake. I should tell you, by the way, there's a few people still in Jerusalem at this time, just a few. Everyone else of these people, they are no longer in God's land anymore. They are no longer in God's place. They're not even a nation anymore at this point. And he sends word to this small group of people, awake, wake up, wake up. Put on your strength, O Zion. 
Put on your beautiful garments. Get dressed up, guys. There's something cool coming. Wake up. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. He's talking about the Babylonians and those that have oppressed them. Look, their time's over. Jerusalem, something's coming. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. You've been sold off into slavery, but you're going to be bought back by something other than money. It would end up being the precious blood of his son. He continues, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people, think of the language, what's the kingdom of God? God's rule, God's people, God's place, God's blessing. So even look at the words he's using. Therefore, whose people? My people shall know my name. Continue on if you would, guys. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Continue on, guys. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What's he saying? He's saying to the people in Jerusalem who think everything's over, everything's ruined, he's like, guys, guess what? Get up. Stop moping, shake the dust off, stop walking around in misery, put your fancy clothes on, there is good stuff coming. He talks about the watchmen, it's as if people are on the city gates watching and they look and they're like, look, 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 guys, look, it's the king, he's back. And then these people, that phrase you've heard probably before, how beautiful are the feet of those on the hill, on those who are on the mountain who are bringing the good news. It's the idea that these watchmen have seen the king coming. And they're running back to this desolate city. They're going, our king is returned. We're not going to be in bondage anymore. We're not going to have these chains around us anymore. Good news. And it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who is here with these people now. We're all the way back to Luke now. But here's the problem. The people of Israel, they all expected the Messiah. These Pharisees believe that text. But they were expecting a massive political revolt where the Messiah would come back, he would wipe Rome off the face of the earth and any other enemy Israel had, and Israel would be the dominant world power kingdom again. But here's a problem. They forgot that they were the original offenders. Because think about it. They're imprisoned going, what's happening is wrong. And God needs to come judge sin and judge this oppression and make it right. But why are they in that oppression in the first place? Because they rebelled against God. And they rebelled against God's word and God's kingdom. And so, if God came back and just wiped out their enemies and established the kingdom, if he's a just God, he would have to wipe them out too. 
Because they're all rebellions, they just wear different clothes, have different names, different pagan gods, but they're all serving different gods, usually themselves. So God sends the Messiah first in the form of Jesus Christ, who lives perfectly. He comes, now think of the parable, a mustard seed, seemingly so insignificant. This little baby, can anything good come out of Nazareth, the text says? And Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life, which is so important. Why? Because he fulfills all of the covenant promises that Israel had failed over and over and over and over. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross, the weight, the guilt, the blame, all of the sin of not just the Babylonians or the Romans, but the Jewish people themselves and people like you and me is placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and there he dies. He pays the price that we deserve for our rebellion against God's kingdom. And then he rises from the dead. He triumphs over sin and death. He's now ascended into heaven, and he says, to those who will repent of their sin and put their faith in me, you will be, and the scriptures are over and over, use things like adopted into the family, you will be children of God, you will be my people. And he's calling us because God is rebuilding his kingdom. It's a now and then kind of thing. Right now, God is rebuilding his kingdom. He's gathering the people of God. He's paid for the sins of those who will then repent and follow him. And then one day, he will return in glory, not on a donkey, but on a horse. One day, not in humility, but in reigning power. One day, the king's going to come over the hill and set everyone completely free and he will wipe out all sin and destruction and it will be glorious and then everything will be back the true kingdom of God God's people in God's place the new heaven and the new earth under God's rule enjoying God's blessing forever and ever and ever and that'll be amazing amen church okay awesome but what does that have to do with all of this and why is Jesus always teaching this What do we as a church do about this now? Just wait for it, get saved, stay holy, and wait for that day? No, because you ever notice what Jesus does? He comes in, he'll do miracles, and then oftentimes there are teachings attached to him as there are here. But what's Jesus doing? He comes into this place where there's this little lady ignored, maligned, shoved off to the side. She's been in bondage for 18 years, and he comes to her, and she's set free. It's like a physical picture of everything that was being taught in that poem in Isaiah. The bondage that has weighed her down long ago. They talk about the chains being removed from the neck. She is let free. She can stand up. She can move. She can now worship and glorify God. And what is it that Jesus says all the time? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? What he means is this. When Jesus came into a scene like that, he would proclaim the kingdom of God. Those miracles were him invading and pushing back the curse of the kingdom of this world. So this woman is broken. Her harmony, if you will, with nature is ravaged because her body is not operating the way it was designed. Her harmony with the other people around her is destroyed. She's the kind of person that would be looked down on and pushed aside. Like all that shalom is gone. And he comes to her and he touches her and he says, you are free. He even calls her a daughter of Abraham. You're one of my chosen. And he sets her free. And in that moment, that element of the curse 
of the kingdom of this world is beat back. And there's this physical manifestation of the true kingdom of God that points towards what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory. What about when Jesus feeds the hungry? When he clothes the orphan? When he casts out demons? What is he doing there? Just trying to get attention so that they'll listen to his teaching? No. The works of Jesus on this earth, it was a twofold ministry. There was a ministry of proclamation where he proclaimed the kingdom of God in repentance. And then there were acts of mercy that showed a visible manifestation of this is the kingdom of God here. So when Jesus comes and does these miracles, it's way more than some guy doing tricks to get attention. He is at war with the fallen demonic forces, the kingdom of the world. That's why even this whole bent over and is she under Satan's burden? Ultimately, absolutely she is. We all are because we are in a broken world because we believe the lie from the beginning. And he goes, so then what does that have to do with us? Because this is what the church has to be about. Look at how he, he's talking to the religious leaders of those days and he's like, you guys, you hypocrites. Oh, you'll teach the stuff. And they would. They're in synagogue. You'll teach the word. You'll dissect it. You'll even get so religious about everything, you'll make up extra rules to make sure you don't break the rules that I gave you. But where's your heart? What happened to the whole Abraham blessing that through you I'm going to bless all these people? Are you blessing her? No, you told her to go away, come back tomorrow or some other time. Your heart is far from me. And church, that's the mission of the church. If you ever go, why is it important that the church do things like feed the hungry or do missions work overseas? Why, wouldn't we, why would we do all that anyway? I mean, God's sovereign. He'll get to those people or he can take care of all those things. Man, we're saved. That's what's important. So we should just gather together and make sure we're here and worship and stay as clean and pure as we can and make just wait for that day till he comes back. And he's like, no, 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 no. It started with this little seed, a little baby born in Nazareth. And then it grew and grew and grew and grew and now has become a tree such as this one right here. Where birds of the air can come and find refuge and nest. Where, where we can now be a place of refreshment. Where we can minister to those that are broken. And when we do that, we're not just doing good deeds for good deeds' sake. When you feed the hungry, you are pushing back against the fallen, chaotic curse of this world where people are not enjoying God's blessing or God's rule and we're saying there's a better kingdom there's a better kingdom there's a better king you are not being provided for because you have fallen but there is a king who loves you and cares for you that wants to call you his son that wants to call you his daughter and he's coming again so what does that all mean to us? It means this is why we have to be about more than just the teaching of the word, as important as the, the teaching of the word is, is so important, amen? But we do something with that. And we push back against the forces of darkness. We push back against this fallen kingdom and we exemplify, we are ambassadors of a new kingdom, of a kingdom to come that is just as or more real than anything this world has ever seen before. And as we do those things, we don't point to heritage. Oh, look how good heritage is. Or, oh, look how good I am. We go, look how good our king is. And let me just say this. I had way more to talk about, but we're already late. But don't despise the small things. Because what can happen is be like, okay, 
then let's do stuff. Let's do big things. Let's do big church at the fair, big, and hopefully it won't storm. Let's do big, huge things. Frankly, our track record on big events this summer is not very good. When we tried to do a big event, a storm came and the state is burning down still ever since, or ever since that. But, but the idea is like sometimes we can go, therefore, what we should do, the church should put all these big programs together and we should do this and this and this and this. And there's a place for some of that, absolutely. But don't miss the little things. The neighbor that you talk to Jesus about, because you don't know what that's going to turn into down the road. You don't know how many people are going to come to Jesus through that person. And I just want to encourage you guys, listen, the church is not the church, that you are the church. Do you know that church? Like you are, the, the church is not a tax-exempt organization. You are the church of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. And everywhere you go, there is evidence of this fallen, broken world. There are people with no peace. There are people with no harmony with God, no harmony with one another, no harmony with nature around them. And you get opportunities everywhere you go to open up a little window into what the kingdom of God is actually about. And plant seeds Remember Jesus' teaching about spreading seeds. That's not accidental. He knows what, he's a good teacher. He knows what he's doing. And to water seeds and to point people towards something better. And every time you feed someone who's hungry, you're pointing them towards provision that can come from above. Every time you clothe the naked, every time we reach out in ministry to someone else and we couple that with the proclamation of the gospel, that whole thing about preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. That guy never actually said that. What that, that is not actually true. The preaching of the gospel is always necessary because the person, it, he has a name. And so we do acts of mercy as we point people to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And I just want to tell you guys, church, it's happening around here. Just this week, I just literally in five minutes tried to sit down and just think of things that I've heard this week. In our church, there's a gal named Heather that was baking cakes and delivering them to the fire departments around here in light of all the stuff that was going on. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's all ended up in the news. Ended up in the news. There's uh, Randy and Sam who are doing CASA advocate work where you go to court on behalf of foster kids who don't have advocates anywhere and you end up trying to make sure they have representation. What could be more Christ-like than that, right? Come in and be an advocate for the one who is powerless because Jesus is our advocate in heaven against Satan's attacks as well. There's Quinn and Chelsea who are taking in foster kids and looking after them. They ended up being in the same courtroom at the time during all that. Um, I think of Larry, Bob, Vern, and some others who have gone and sat recently with shut-ins. Mitch, who went to, the, to a hospital visit just this last week with one of our dear ones who actually passed away this week. Mitch got to spend some time with him that very morning, and he was talking to me this week about what a sweet and powerful visit that was. Man, little bitty things where you get to come into darkness, come into heartbreak, come into difficulty, and you get to peel back the layers a little bit and open up a window and say, oh, there's something better coming. There's a good God who loves you. How beautiful are the feet on the mountain, those that bring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So church, please, like, don't come to church, be the church. And then we'll gather together and celebrate and rejoice just as these people did when Jesus set this woman free. Because the reality is this, this is what he does for us. He has come to set us free. Amen? All right, that's a long sermon. Let's stand and pray.
Father, I pray now that we've, we've seen this in the word. We know your will for the church. We know your, your heart for those who are broken and lost. We know your heart for those who are ultimately dying in their sin. And we know that, Lord, not only have you sought out us, but, Lord, now you have sent us into the world that we might seek others out as well. So I pray, God, you would help us to do that and understand that. God, give us boldness for mission that we might be people who are about your kingdom, that we might be those who preach the kingdom of God. Help us to actively take advantage of opportunities to peel back the window, to show people that, that there's another kingdom coming. And Lord, for those who are here that have never given their lives to you, Father, may you bring them to you. May they see you and your grace. Lord, may you save. And I pray that all these things would be done, not for heritage's namesake, but for yours. For you are our king, our rock, our redeemer, our Lord. You have been so good to us. And Lord, how can we not but serve you and follow you in this way? So may you bless your people this week. May you lead them and guide them. May they pursue holiness and pursue the lost in your name. And may you continue to set your people apart for your purposes. In Jesus' name. All God's people said? Amen. I love you guys. Have a great week. Go tell people about Jesus.